staccato handguns are trusted and approved by over 900 elite law enforcement agencies, including 65 SWAT teams. When it comes to accuracy and reliability, the choice is easy with staccato. Hey, welcome back to Policing Matters on PoliceOne.com. I'm your host, Jim Dudley. Well, you've heard us talk about the stress that comes from the duties of being a law enforcement officer. Some situations are well beyond our control. Well, today we're going to shift gears a little bit and talk about organizational stressors or stress that comes from within the agency that you may work for. William Bill Mazur, Strategic Account Manager and Public Safety Liaison with Acadia Healthcare, is a 25-year law enforcement veteran and retired from his department in 2017 at the rank of Deputy Chief of Police. He currently serves as Master Instructor with the FBI National Academy Associates in their Comprehensive Officer Resiliency Training Program. Welcome, uh, Bill. Thank you so much, Jim. It's a pleasure to be here. And Joseph, or Joe Collins, is a 35-year law enforcement veteran who retired in 2020 from Two Rivers Police Department in Wisconsin as chief of police. He is a master instructor with the FBI NAA's Comprehensive Officer Resilient Train the Trainer program and serves as a consultant for the U.S. Department of Justice as a subject matter expert in officer resilience. Welcome, Joe. Hey, thanks a lot, Jim. We're just really honored and proud to be able to be associated with this. So. Well, great to have you guys on, and thanks for what you do for law enforcement officers across the profession. Appreciate it. We know it's needed, and we talk about the stress from the job, right? Going to critical incidents and calls for service, mm -hmm. people in crisis, people in agony. We hear stories then of pressure from supervisors in command that can be just as stressful. Is that a valid claim? Yes, yeah, certainly. So what I would say is, in our experience, is that there are stressors from both angles, right? There are frontline officers who face everyday pressures, repetitive exposures to trauma, pressures from the community pressure to make the right decision, right, in an instant. And then leadership certainly feels that pressure as well, right? I mean, in today's, let's say, climate, there is what I would describe or what we would describe as a zero margin of error for leadership, right? CEOs, chiefs, sheriffs. What does that mean? Well, quite simply, you could very well be one incident away from being the lead story on national news tomorrow, right? We see this repetitively, small town USA, virtually unknown, and some horrific event occurs. Um, we could take something as recent as, you know, Uvalde, right? I don't know how many people outside of Texas or in that part of Texas actually heard of that town before. I would say most law enforcement folks know what Uvalde is now, unfortunately. And so what we say is pressures come from both sides. Uh, is one more serious than the other? No, there's just nuances. They're different, right? And so that's the way we look at these organizational pressures. Now, I would say operational stress and pressure is probably specific to more line officers, line supervisors, because Let's face it, they are the they're out there every day. They're the ones who are faced with, let's say, difficult situations, trauma, imminent threats to their life. So that's more of an operational stress thing. The organizational stress starts to become an issue for folks that are maybe support staff who work 
in an office every day, maybe mid-level management up through senior level management, because organizational stress can come in so many different ways, right? The, the zero margin of error, uh, maybe a demanding um, community issue, maybe a demanding you know city manager or people above you who are looking at the numbers and the budget. So the, the, the irony of that is, is that it does the same thing to you physiologically. Right? It raises your blood pressure, raises your heart rate, you release cortisol, the stress hormone. And physiologically, it has the same impact on you, but there are different nuances. So that's sort of the way that we look at operational and organizational stress. So yeah. I, both, um, go ahead, Joe. Sorry. No, and I just, just to add to that, then some of the other stressors are when critical situations happen, especially for those first line supervisors, because those are the ones that are seeing the calls that officers are going on and the responsibility that they hold for the people that they supervise, because they know they're going into some of these calls and it will change them. <laughs> you know, you go into some of these calls where ch children are being abused and things like that. You don't walk through the threshold of that call and come out the same person. And understanding that as a supervisor, we call that vicarious trauma, is that the supervisors are struggling with that type of stress because they have to make sure that they're caring for the people that they're responsible for. So those are other stressors that uh, kind of fit into this whole framework of what we're discussing. For sure. And I think line officers probably feel like, geez, I just got out of this horrible situation. I come back and my supervisor's asking where my hat is or mm -hmm. some other administrative thing that just, you know, it, there's they're they're lacking the acknowledgement of their just past recent experience, most recent experience. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So you're both trainers who are typical in your classes, line officers, mid managers, or command staff. And if you have different ones, how do you tailor the message for each of those? Right. Well, yes to all of those, but then also there's a significant number of uh, professional staff. You know, it may be the clerical people, it may be dispatchers, um, because within the first responder community, everybody is impacted by these type of calls and these type of situations and family members, <laughs> you know, is that we have to understand that being a first responder and getting trained to be a first responder, what we have done organizationally, whether we knew it or not, I think it's kind of becoming a little bit more aware right now, is that we've required them to change their way of thinking. Mm. And what we mean by that is that we, we move them from living in a world of probability. That's the normal human, human being out there, the citizens. They live in a world of probability where they can go to the grocery store, they can go to the movie tonight, they can go to the shopping center, the school event, and probably nothing's going to happen. So they get to live in that world. You know, I won't use bliss, but the fact that they don't have to worry about that. And uh, But first responders, what we have required them to do through training is switch from probability to possibility, meaning that possibly tonight, if I go to this basketball game at the high school, there might be an active shooter. Right. And that changes your belief system and it changes the way that you see the world because you have to have a plan. And without a plan, then you can't respond appropriately. So that's kind of what we talk about during training is understanding your physiology and recognizing your physiology when it's not where you want to be. And then what can you do about that? Well, there's certain tools that you can do. You know, we train, we get correct reactions and responses to different situations so that we can do that. But then how is it impacting us after the call? 
<laughs> you know, and how is it impacting other people around us after the call? And what, what can we do about it? So we cover a lot of that. Bill and I, we kind of joked that, that we could talk about this for 10 minutes or a lifetime because being a better person and being more resilient and handling your job more appropriately, that there's not a destination there. It's a work in progress and it's a journey that we're all on. I would also say, Jim, so what's really cool about the resilience curriculum, um, that's by the way, which you know, most of it, if not all of it, the foundational aspects of it come from Dr. Martin Seligman's research and work, you know, over 30 plus years out of the University of Pennsylvania. He is known as many by as the godfather of positive psychology. And that's really where this resilience structure came. It went through the military to the FBI National Academy Associates and then out, you know, into law enforcement for the most part. And what's beautiful about it is, is that it's applicable and transferable to any human being, regardless of your profession, your socioeconomic background. Why? Because in a nutshell, what it does is it raises your ability to be self-aware. So it raises self-awareness so you can better self-manage, right? Mm -hmm. And that the self-management part is healthy coping skills or adaptive coping skills. And look, I don't know about you. I could probably, this is a rhetorical question, so I probably know the answer. I know the answer for Joe and I. We weren't taught these things in the police academy 25, 30 years ago, right? It just wasn't a conversation. There was some of it, but not an in-depth sort of, you know, look at, hey, you're going to have exposure to trauma. How do you deal with it? Those weren't really conversations back then. And I'm not throwing a dart at the profession. I mean, it just wasn't part of the operational vernacular 30 years ago. It just wasn't. Um, so what this is doing is really giving people tangible, actionable coping skills and what to do when your physiology is off. Because most people will just suck it up, rub some dirt in it, move on move on to the next trauma, perhaps. And that's really what we do in the first responder world. What we're saying is, hey, here's some tools to pump the brakes, right? Envision that yellow flashing light, like dangerous curve ahead and do a self-assessment. Why am I feeling this way? Is this situation that I've been exposed to either personally or professionally, is it somehow impacting me? Is it not sitting well with me? Now, what do I do if it's not, right? Mm -hmm. So these are coping skills and obviously, you know, trauma and the impacts of trauma, they know no socioeconomic background, gender, you know, race, whatever. It, it's humanity. So that's why it's so applicable to all disciplines and professions. Sure. Absolutely. And from the perspective of the officer on the street, uh, you know, like my introduction said, life's a box of chocolates when you're running from call to call, you go to a mm -hmm. call for service and you never know what you're going to get is... Some, you know, wise man once said, right. but then they go back and they're called in the office by their captain or maybe even the chief. And again, that there's that anxiety build from within. Of course, we have administrative rights, but what should they ask about those kinds of impromptu meetings um, where you just you just don't know what what you're being called in for? Mm -hmm. That's that's a great question. And it's probably going through the minds of everyone at some point when you start out as a new officer. Here's, here's the way I would say I would answer this, this question. Uh, there's a responsibility on both ends there, right? Mm -hmm. So as human beings, we default to the negative, neg negative right? The, the, the negativity bias is, is what I was trying to say. 
I think studies show and, and you know, neuropsychology that the, the average human has for every one positive thought, they have about seven or eight negative thoughts, right? So then this is reality. And we have the tendency to go to the negative. Now, take a first responder and more specific, a law enforcement professional who's consistently and repetitively exposed to the negative of the human race, right? The worst of the worst of what humans can do to each other. So therefore, we would say it's amplified. Now, we don't have statistics to, you know, we don't have empirical evidence. We have anecdotal evidence because we have thousands of conversations with folks. That's part of our job. And we both experience, and I'm sure you probably have to a degree as well. So, so there's a shared responsibility. The officer has to learn to take a deep breath, not assume the worst. Of course, that doesn't mean throw away your situational awareness or your sense of reality. If you've done something wrong, take a deep breath and do not have an emotional reaction, right? Joe's really good at talking about this. You know, we, and we discuss this all the time, the difference between a reaction and a response, right? I'll let Joe go into that, but essentially we're looking for an appropriate response, not an emotional reaction. So that's on the onus of the officer to have a, the right mindset, take a deep breath and don't go in with assumptions, right? Now, supervisor on the other end, uh, they have they have a responsibility to get facts before acts, right? And make sure that the 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 inquiry is appropriate, is time appropriate and situation appropriate. This is exactly why we are huge proponents of training your supervisors to recognize adverse reactions or adverse responses to traumatic events. This is this should be part of rudimentary foundational training for, especially for frontline supervisors, certainly all the way up the chain, but frontline supervisors are going to be the ones who really get to see this probably the most, right? A, a, an initial response to a, a, a call on the street or on the road that the, the line officers responded to where there was some trauma, where there was, you know, increased heart rate, there was a confrontation, something like that. So I would say the onus exists on both sides, Joe. Absolutely. And what Bill's getting at there is it's a great phrase from the, uh, from, uh, the book, um, boy, I just lost it. Victor Frankel's uh, Man's Search for Meaning, where he says in that in that particular book, is that between stimulus and response, there is a space. And within that space, we get to choose our humanity. <laughs> so the whole idea is between stimulus and response, not between stimulus and reaction. There's no space there. <laughs> There's a space when you can recognize that this particular situation requires a response. Because then we can respond on and, and reflect who we want to be as a human being. And uh, that's where the, the magic happens then. Because if you're reacting to everything, hmm, who knows what's going to be there, right? Because that's more of the mammal part of the brain or the reptile part of the brain. Uh, but really getting back to the core of this is that I'm going to push back on supervisors and organizations on this. That is every single time you're calling your people back to have a meeting, that it's potentially a very bad discussion. Shame on you. <laughs> is that because then if you are calling somebody back, they know what's going to happen. It's going to be a horrible situation for them. They're going to react. You know, they're going to get emotional about it. But you need to be calling people in or, or meeting with people all the time and talking about positive things, what they're doing, so that when you have a conversation, you don't have to start with a negative one. And, uh, and understanding the fact that, you know, we talked about this activation and reaction and things, is that the supervisors have to understand that potentially they are an activating event for their officers. 
in these types of situations. Like Bill Satter, you said that when when they're called being called in because of a something that went potentially wrong or bad or whatever it might be, understand that they may be activated when they're coming to see you. And you have to process that activation away because what you're really asking for is why why it happened. What happened? Tell me what it did. Is can I fix it? You may have done a fantastic. You might be in for officer of the year, for God's sakes. And all they're worried about is the fact that everybody that comes in here is getting yelled at. And they're not going to hear <laughs> what your truly, the whole goal of the conversation is, is to, to make sure that if we have to learn something from that particular situation, we're all on the same team and we're going to learn and we're going to work through it and we're going to grow and be stronger as a result. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. It's uh, it, like all of these things. It's a, it's a symbiotic relationship here, is that everybody has to work together to have a good, healthy organization. Hey, Jim, I would offer a, a finite example, right? So if you have an officer who happened to perform, you know, exceptionally on a call, right? It's a good idea to make some private time and call that officer into a private meeting, but tell them why they're coming to the meeting, right? And it could look something like, Hey, I'd like to talk to you about that call at 123 Main Street yesterday, whatever, which, by the way, you handled in an outstanding manner. The, 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 uh, the tension is cut immediately, right? So when you bring them in and you talk about it and you praise them, and then you say, by the way, I hope you're okay with this. I'm going to share this at roll call. What an outstanding job you did, because this is truly a finite example for other folks to look at and, and, and see. and learn some good behavior, learn some positive tactics, right? And then it sends a message to the other folks. First of all, it sends a message to the officer. Hey, you're acknowledging them. You're appreciated. Great job. And this is a learning thing for others. But others also realize that leadership appreciates that. And that may be a course of action for them in, in, in the future, right? So an example. And it sounds like, Joe, you, you were talking about from the supervisor's uh, perspective to go more from a position of curiosity rather than judgment uh, to get mm -hmm. to get the facts out. Yeah. And, and, and it's then, very uh, difficult. It's very difficult for any of us to live in the judgment free zone. <laughs> and and understanding that as a supervisor, the call and the situation that the officer is facing is not necessarily about you. It's about them. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and it's about how we can make them stronger. And as a result, the rest of us become stronger. Absolutely. And Bill, when you talk about, you know, going to those, you know, the eight to one ratio of negative thoughts versus positive ones that, you know, that reminds me of my golf game, right? I got, got that <laughs> wide open green and all I see is the water on the left and the sand on the right. Mm -hmm. So most departments have an early intervention or early warning system. Sometimes they appear punitive. How can a chief's command staff uh, audit without looking for that sort of gotcha vehicle mm -hmm. um, to catch you doing something wrong. Right. Well, I'm going to push back on uh, on the very first word there is that I don't think most departments have that in place mm. because the vast majority of police departments across this country, and I believe the statistics I saw at one point is about 82 or 90 to 94% of police departments have fewer than 100 police officers in the United States. Right. So for them to have an official early warning system in place, I don't think that it exists. But they do have a system in place. That's the first line supervisor. 
And and the in the unfortunately, or there's a lot of agencies that don't do a good job of training leaders and training, you know, to what you do in that in that role. And and it's not just in law enforcement first responders across the board in every organization. It's like, you know what? Bill is doing a really good job at his at his job. He's performing really well. You know what we're going to do is we're going to slap a couple of stripes on his sleeve and then he must know how to lead other people to do exactly what he's doing. That's not the case. <laughs> it takes a different type of training to be a leader in an organization, not a manager, a leader to be able to move people forward. So I believe what early warning systems or people in place, their whole responsibility is to gauge the wellness of the organization. And when somebody isn't behaving, potentially, the way our organization expects them to behave, why is that? You know, it's not just simply, okay, uh, Bill was involved in three use of force uh, incidents within the last six months. Oh, red flag. <laughs> it's like, okay, well, if that is brought to our attention, and now that's a concern, then why is that occurring? And we have to, like Bill said before, now it's a whole fact-finding thing. Is like, were all of those use of forces absolutely justified? And he was in a situation. And you know what? Some people that are involved in use of forces, the next time they recognize they have to step up the game or step down the game, depending upon the situation. There is no one size fits all in any of these particular situ calls or whatever it is. And guess what? Each officer brings their story to every single call that they're going on. So what's going on up here <laughs> impacts what's going on out there. So we have to make sure that we're doing that. And, and using these type of warning systems is some kind of a mechanism to um, just constantly berate people or hold them, you know, saying that they're doing something wrong and weaponizing, I guess, this whole process. It's like, that's not what this is about. This whole idea about having an early warning system in place is to recognize when the organization or the organism that we are is not where it needs to be. So how do we get them from where they have maybe drifted to get them back where we want them to be? Or, you know what, they've drifted in a direction that maybe the whole organization has to go that way. So it's a whole idea of like shutting down your judgment and recognizing the fact my attention is now over here. There's a reason my attention is over here. Why is that? So we, we need to pay attention to those. And I've had discussions with other people organizations and people that are now working for some of our records management systems is that when an officer is doing the reporting out on a particular call, we should know that certain calls are going to impact somebody's mental health. So when they're doing these things, perhaps, and we've had discussions is that, oh, you went on a child abuse call, there should be something that pops up or does something that's like asks you the question. Did this call that you were on just impact your mental health in any way? And if you click yes, the report isn't the most important thing right now. The most important thing is to determine what's going on and how that call potentially negatively impacted somebody. Because when we, we get trauma and stress into our systems, it stays in our system. It stays in our system until we do something on purpose the right way to get it out of our system. And the best time to do that is as early in the, in the process as possible. So if I just got back from a drowning of a child or whatever that call might be, guess what? I'm different. <laughs> and now I have to recognize what we talked about before. My physiology is off. Something's not right. I don't feel right. I need to have a critical conversation with myself 
And I probably have to have that conversation with somebody else. And who is that? What is the resources? That information should be readily available. And the first line supervisor as the early warning sign should also know that. I would add to that also a couple of phrases come to mind that Joe and I use quite a bit. Uh, the first one is undesirable behavior may be a sign of unwellness. Let that sink in for a second, right? Now, look, that is not meant to give people free passes, excuses for not following policy or rules and regulations. I mean, we are rules and regulation people. That that that's that's imperative. That or else there's anarchy, right? We, you know, rules and regulations and policies are good things, um, but not everything should be defaulted to. How do we discipline them, right? How do we get rid of this person? This person's a liability. Certainly, there are situations where that's created um, and there's really no way around it, so to speak. I mean, discipline becomes a major component of it. That's where the second phrase comes in that we use quite a bit. And uh, I hadn't heard anybody use this until we started using it. Joe and I and a good friend of ours, who I'm sure you know, Paul Butler, we use this phrase, compassionate accountability. What does that mean? Well, Again, rules and regulations and policies are good and people must be held accountable. But either before that disciplinary sort of paradigm or simultaneously or concurrently, we can figure out how to save their life, their career, their relationships or their family, right? So that's where we talk about, hey, what's going on physiologically? Is there an issue at home? Is there trouble in the marriage? Is there a sick child at home? Now they come to work and they're, they're fused, right? Their temperature, uh, you know, their internal temperature, so to speak, symbolically is high or their fuse is low, right? So they're dealing with all these outside stressors. And so that can be a major cause of undesirable behavior and a major indicator of unwellness. Mm-hmm. Yeah, great points, Bill. And, you know, that's why... I have mixed feelings about early intervention systems, but at the least, it gives us some context of our employees. Mm -hmm. And when we have span of control issues, you know, we have declining numbers in law enforcement. And if you have a sergeant now, you know, used to have uh, one sergeant overseeing six or seven officers, you might have a sergeant overseeing 10 or more officers. So that span of control gets kind of thin. So having that sort of baseline number or how many traumatic incidents, how many uses of force, uh, injuries, traffic accidents, you know, things like that, maybe a new baby at home. Those are all, those all lend to the officer's performance. Right. And the whole idea behind the early warning system is that that is a tool to open dialogue and conversations about a particular situation. The early warning system is not the fix. <laughs> and it's not the tool that will do the fix it for you. It just creates the mechanism of having a fo- further conversation and investigation into what's going on. And I think that some people just use it as a uh, organizations use it as a crutch. It's like, mm-hmm. well, they just they just got all of these things. Okay, like Bill said, discipline. Like, hold on. <laughs> you know, hundred percent, Jim. You know, one of the one of the biggest. Um, things that we see, one of the biggest obstacles, one of the biggest causation factors, and it's for various reasons, but it boils down to lack of sleep, right? Yes. So people burn in the candle at both ends. And then if you add some, you know, overuse of substance, most typically alcohol, right? You're coming home, you're having a couple of drinks, a couple of drinks turn into a few more. 
because you want to feel tired and go to sleep, which it does. It makes you pass out. But as we know, you don't get into deep restorative sleep, which is REM sleep. Uh, I think the recommendations for the average typical healthy adult, seven to eight hours of sleep, and I think about 90 minutes of that or so is, you know, REM sleep. That's a healthy sort of, you know, um, paradigm. Um, and, you know, you'll see folks getting 10, 10 minutes of REM sleep. That is an issue uh, because the next day, right, it's Groundhog's Day. You may have passed out from drinking. You didn't go into REM sleep. You didn't get that deep restorative sleep that helps your brain sort of recharge, heal from trauma, process trauma. You wake up in a cognitive fog. Now you come to work and you are annoyed. You are, you know, there's issues, right? Your, your, your fuse is, is low. So it and, it, and it repeats itself. So we see a lot of cognitive issues, which of course, delayed responses. Um, you know, you're talking about um, sort of confrontational sort of demeanor because of lack of sleep. I mean, think about as new parents, right? And folks who are listening to us who, are, who have been new parents, who are new parents, right? How, you know, the lack of sleep from a new baby and the, the mutual caring of a child, what that can do when you lack sleep, right? You're, you're not as good a parent. You're not as good a spouse, right? So lack of sleep is a huge, huge thing that we see as a problem, a causational factor. For sure. Yeah, I want to get into some of the the stressors and the responses and some confidentiality issues. But first, I'd like to take a moment to thank our sponsor. Choose the handgun trusted by over 900 law enforcement agencies across the country. With Staccato, you can feel confident knowing you aren't sacrificing incredible accuracy for reliability. Whether you're protecting your family at home or on duty, Staccato has your back. Military and law enforcement receive discount pricing through the Staccato Heroes Program. Visit www.staccato2011 backslash heroesprogram.com to learn more. That's Staccato, S-T-A-C-C-A-T-O, 2011 backslash heroes-program.com. And we're back and I'm speaking with Joe Collins and Bill Mazur, resiliency trainers and police officers. Uh, let me ask you guys about confidentiality. Let's switch gears a little bit and talk about the biggest challenges to confidentiality. If we want to approach a member who may be struggling, uh, you know, oftentimes it's not just the officer, but maybe, you know, their, their surrounding of, of their colleagues and they may know more than you do. Um, what's your approach there and, and how do you protect that confidentiality? Absolutely. So I think that really it's important that we have the correct structures in place and the right people in place within organizations so that there can be confidential conversations from peer to peer. You know, if you have an organized peer support team that's trained in most places now, that's a protected conversation. Obviously, if somebody's suicidal or homicidal or, you know, if, if it turns into a mandatory reporting situation, that changes the, the dynamics of the conversation. But those in peer that have been trained are able to explain those up front before the conversation starts and letting them know. So peer to peer conversations, chaplains programs within organizations, um, outside confidential resources, someone maybe that isn't within the organization that's outside. Bill and I do a lot of work in that in that capacity in our roles right now, where someone doesn't necessarily trust the organization for whatever reason that might be, confidentiality issues. Um, 
we talked about policies and procedures quite a bit and having all of these things in place. You've got to have a plan because it will happen within your organization that someone, whether it be an acute traumatic situation, you know, an officer-involved shooting, some big thing happened, because everybody knows about that in the agency for the most part, because a number of people were involved in that. And they may be struggling at different levels, depending upon their proximity to the situation. But it's the vicarious trauma. It's a cumulative trauma. It's the maybe the trauma that they came to the job with, you know, the adolescent trauma, um, where people need to seek help. And really, if they reach out and use their sick time or their uh, FMLA time, reach out to a confidential resource or whatever, the agency might not even know the fact that they're where they are because there's laws protecting that. You know, when Bill and I have conversations with people now, it's a HIPAA protected conversation. If you call me about Bill, guess what? I can't even tell you what Bill and I talked about because it's protected. And organizations have to understand that. But it's a conversation you have to have ahead of time with the officers, with the union, with the supervisors, letting them know. It's kind of like an IA investigation, basically, is that if I'm investigating Bill, the rest of the organization, even though they think that they want to know, if they're in Bill's situation, they don't want anyone else to know. So it's 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 kind of a double-edged sword is that most of the time when people are talking about this, it's the person that's either in trouble or seeking help that's telling somebody else about what's going on. And then that just kind of spreads around with uh, gossip, basically, you know, water cool talk, cooler talk, or so they understand that supervisors are responsible for not discussing that, but then the people that are below in different situations or leading up have to understand that they can't necessarily ask certain questions because they won't get an answer and they and they shouldn't be upset about that because if they were in that position, they should see it, see that the same way. Um, and we also talk about people coming to their organization or not, whatever the perception is, it might be the perception that all of the information that Bill went through recently was told to everybody by the su supervisor. So there is a breach in confidence. Mm -hmm. So the likelihood is that somebody's not going to ask for help, right? Mm -hmm. You know, we talk about policies and procedures in place. And if you don't follow those things, what, what we kind of jokingly say is that organizations are great at having policies about everything. I can tell you that your organization, just like the organizations I work for, have a policy for exactly where your name tag goes above your fold of your pocket. It's got to be like a half an inch above. It's got to be centered. It's a, but very few have policies regarding officers in crisis and what to do. And, you know, we talked about this before, is that when a first line supervisor then recognize somebody's in crisis and you don't have a plan or a policy, because during a crisis, we, we fall back to the plan, right? The operations plan. And when they go back there and there's not a plan, what happens now is you have two people in crisis because you have a frontline supervisor that cares about their employee and what they're going through, but they don't know what to do about it. Mm. You know, that's part of vicarious trauma as a leader is that I care about Bill. I understand that he's changed. I don't know what to do about it. Bill? Yeah, I mean, the confidentiality piece has to have the highest priority placed on it by an organization. And I, I would like to note, you know, one of the great things that was done in New Jersey when the New Jersey Resiliency Project was initiated here, they actually inserted an attorney general guideline that gave uh, the resiliency program officers, which are officers in every department in the state that are folks that people can come to if they're seeking resources and help. 
and they have protections to not repeat those, right? So, you know, the, the best example I could give to you is they even have protections against the chief of police or the prosecutor from that county, which would be the DA, another word for district attorney. They can't even go and speak to somebody about this. They can't question their protections. And that's an attorney general guideline. So it's been taken very serious um, here in New Jersey. But like Joe said, you know, we're a little bit different. We're an external resource, Acadia Healthcare and the public safety liaison team, where we're not, we don't sign contracts with organizations. We don't seek contracts. Uh, that's how we are able to keep confidentiality and HIPAA protections to the highest priority. We actually have a legal and ethical obligation to not repeat things to folks, unless, of course, it's a scenario that Joe described where it's a must report, right? So, and that's really the strength of, of, of what we can do. Um, whereas, you know, maybe an internal mechanism might have to, they might have an obligation to, to report something, or they might get a question from a supervisor and feel the obligation to tell them what's going on. Uh, we don't have those same restrictions or guidelines. So, it's it's it allows us to really really endorse enforce and comply with the highest standards of HIPAA. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I totally understand the confidentiality issues and the need and the protections. And of course, Joe, like you said, the stigma. If if the word does leak out, then you're just gonna, you know, throw up a barricade to anybody else who seeks help in the future. How are others in a department notified about a colleague? And, and Joe, you talked about, you know, more than half of the agencies in America are under, I think, 20 people. Um, there may be rumors going, maybe a false narrative. Mm -hmm. uh, a colleague who may otherwise just vanished, right? What happened to, you know, Jim? He he was working here two weeks ago and we haven't seen him and nobody said a word. What What is an agency to do to fill the gap there? Right. And really what it comes down to is pre-planning before it occurs <laughs> within the organization and leadership needs to have a role in that. Um, union leadership, the officers need to have a role in that. And, you know, the best time to plant, plant a tree was four years ago. Right. <laughs> and uh, if the, the next best time is right now. So what we need to do is we need to be able to plan for these things to occur. And maybe it's doing a, a tabletop and bringing everybody in. And before a situation occurs, and we talk about this, Bill and I actually, we created what we call an organizational checklist and it's on the website. And what it does, it's about 15 different things that we have found across the country that are best practices within our organizations. And it's getting things done before the crisis happens. Or you know what, if you just had one, guess what? It's time to learn from that and move forward then. So there's never a bad time to make a situation better. Um, in that particular situation, what I would think is they come together with a collective script that you're going to, if, if you come and ask me, it's like, what happened to Bill? It's like, remember, we had this discussion before. And in these particular situations, this is what our plan is. And this is what our response is going to be in those particular situations. So here's my response. And then you should the light shop should come on. It's like, yep, you're right. Because when, when I was part of that discussion, I was sure hoping that nobody would say X, Y, and Z in front of everybody else. It's like, exactly. And that's why we're sticking to the script because Bill deserves the same protections and the same dialogue and the same care that we're going to give to everybody else in the future. Mm. And it's really pre-planning because that's, that's why we have reams of policies and procedures out there, right? So let's make sure that this is part of it. 
And one of the things that before I left, I, I retired in 2020, what I was trying to do was incorporate a mental health response to any time that the um, IOC was activated. When you've got the, uh, the, the, a big situation where your emergency response is happening, you know that that's going to potentially have some kind of a mental response or a, a behavioral issue with people going there. Why would you not have professionals on scene ready to roll saying, you know what? We've got you. <laughs> We've got a plan. They can watch the people that are in, in the operations center as well, because those people are responsible for everybody else doing the stuff out on the street. So it's all about pre-planning, pre-scripting these events so that when they happen, you've got a response to them. And unfortunately, Wisconsin in the last two weeks have had three officers killed in extremely small departments. Mm. I'm talking like three or four man departments. And then there's a sheriff that was just killed in a city of about 800 people. Um, yeah, thank God that they have a response team for the entire state to go out and help with these situations. Because most agencies that lose a, an officer in the line of duty, it's the first one they've lost. So we've got to have pre-plans for these things. Bill, you want to add? Yeah, to yeah, of course. I mean, risk mitigation is what Joe's talking about, pre-planning. We do it every day for everything else, and we should do it for this as well. Why should your mental um, wellness be any different from your physical preparedness, mm -hmm. right, to an event? And and so, you know, what, what we say is, is that, you know, we see a lot of folks who, well, let me, let me back up. I, I think people's brains go to that negativity bias and maybe think like, oh, so-and-so has a drinking problem or, you know, whatever, um, or, you know, you know, what's going on? Are they stressed out? You know, there can be some of that, that banter back and forth. And, and so, you know, what we see a good portion of is really people who have neither one of those things. It's not a work-related trauma. It's not substance use. It's a major, major personal issue going on, right? And I mean, just to name a few, a spouse who has been given a terminal diagnosis, um, the loss of a child. I mean, what, what could be worse than those two things? Um, some other sort of trauma um, that occurs in their personal life and they need some time off. So people need to understand, are any of us immune to that? Of course not. Of course not. So we need to respect the personal lives of people when we talk about, hey, what happened to so-and-so? Because you don't know. Don't let your brain default to, uh, maybe it was a, a substance use, an alcohol issue, or he or she couldn't handle it or whatever. Um, there could be, you know, very, very um, acute personal trauma or acute personal situations that are going, going on in their lives. People should respect that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I had a leader at one point, and uh, you know, we talk about creating your own personal board of directors is one of our resiliency lessons, and having this group of people that you can you lean into when in times they're difficult and you need you need difficult questions answered, not necessarily agreeing with you, but having these people in place, and uh, we we kind of jokingly say, but it's important to have people on your board of directors that don't get a vote, and those are leaders maybe that you've had that have taught you everything that you don't want to do as a leader. <laughs> and uh, I and again, I don't hold people responsible for information they didn't have when they didn't have it. But this particular leader and I was a very type A personality. I was in SWAT and you guys, Bill, as well. And and we need a lot of type A people out there. So this leader said, hey, when you come to work, you need to check your ego outside. And it's like, what part of me don't you want on this job? But he didn't understand what he was saying, I think, because now you can, I, I'll put a twist on it and I'll say, you know what needs to be checked at the door? Your judgment. 
when you're dealing with with people that are having issues like Bill was talking about. It isn't about you. You have no idea what journey that they're on because our organizations and our culture doesn't create an environment that we share a whole lot with each other. And that I think needs to change because if I'm going on a call with Bill or with you or whatever, I'd sure like to know that you're having a struggle at home with the loss of a child or you're, somebody's got a bad health because it's going to impact your vision and the, and the lenses that you're looking through right now. And I just need to know that. Not that you can't do the job, but I need to be aware of it. Yeah, makes total sense. Hey, I want to be respectful of your time. You both are important guys and you're going around and talking about resiliency and arming. You know, my byline on my email is arm yourself dot 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 with knowledge. And so you guys are doing that. You're giving officers the tools to you know, maintain their sanity and uh, you know be healthy. So thanks for what you guys do. Thanks for coming on the show today. Thank you. And like I said at the beginning, it's just an honor. And uh, I don't know that Bill and I had anticipated uh, a, even a couple of years ago that we'd be able to have these type of discussions on the uh, the platforms that we've been invited to do. And uh, it's rewarding. And uh, and I tell people, I think I had about five life-saving awards in the 35 years that uh, that I was on the job, but I've had more people tell me in the last 12 months that you saved my life than I ever had in my entire career. Because pe this everyone is very hungry for this information. They're desperate to get it. We need to keep the conversation going. And, and it's okay to ask for help. It really is. And uh, we're there for you. Yeah, thank you, Jim. I'll, I'll echo that. It's a real honor. I mean, look, everyone knows the great content that Police One puts out through their articles, their training, their education, and now the podcast. So it's, it's a pleasure to be on with you. We appreciate the kind invitation to be here and really share some of the stuff that we're seeing across the nation. Um, you know, Joe and I have the honor and the privilege of being in this space and hearing these conversations literally across the country, Alaska, California, Florida, Portland, Maine, and everything in between. And what we can tell you is we've had over 6,000 of those conversations that returned in, that turned into referrals, right? And so what we can tell you unequivocally, and, and we think with a high level of, of uh, credentials or credibility, is that cops are going through the same things everywhere, regardless of federal, state, local, county, whatever it is, that it's the continuity of the experience, right? You could take the person's name out of it, their geography, their department, and I could put the fact pattern in, you know, in Seattle, Washington, or, you know, Miami, Florida. Why? Again, because of the continuity of the experience. So we're all going through something. We're all sharing these experiences. And um, so, you know, that's how we get, we get to see these good outcomes. When people reach out and ask for help, we get to see the tremendous outcomes on the other side. So thanks again for allowing us to share this. Yeah, my pleasure. Hey, so we've listed your website on the show notes below. You've got some great resources, uh, your bios and the link to Acadia Healthcare, where you have these great articles and resources for our listeners. So thanks for that, too. Absolutely. welcome. Yep. All of our information is on our webpage, helpingfirstresponders.com, and uh, our contact information is there. Great. Hey, thanks for being on the show. And to our listeners, hope you enjoyed today's show listening to Joe Collins and Bill Mazur, resiliency trainers for Acadia Health. 
they're at the IACP, they're at the FBI National Academy, and across the board, worth a look at their website uh, to see what they have available for us. We haven't had this much attention to officers' uh, wellness and health and resiliency until probably this last decade. So take advantage of it and be well. And thanks again for listening and watching on YouTube. And hope to catch up with you again real soon. Take good care.